Let's pray together. Father, we confess our sin to you this morning. Lord, you have called us to holiness and righteousness, and Lord, we have failed in that. We have not obeyed your word as we should. We have not followed your your calling as we should. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of our sin. And Lord, we pray that, we ask that with confidence, because we know that as your word has promised, that you forgive us. You have pardoned us in Christ. And so Lord, we plead his blood before you this morning. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you have taken our sins and placed them upon him and taken his righteousness and given it to us. Not because of anything that we had done, not because of any righteous work that we could muster. Lord, because we know from your word that we cannot muster righteousness. Lord, you have given us everything that we need to be forgiven. You have given us new hearts. You have given us your spirit. You have given us the blood of Christ, our Savior. So this morning, Lord, as we come to your word together, I pray that our hearts would not be set on the things of this world, that we would not be focused on the, the, the things that are around us. We would not be focused on anything other than Jesus Christ today. I pray, Father, for this message that you would speak through me, that, Lord, you would use this time to sanctify and strengthen and build up your people. Lord, that we would be more like Jesus through this. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. One of the things, concepts, I guess, if you want to use that word, that we see mentioned a lot in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament specifically, is justice. Some of the most well-known verses in the Bible have to do with God's justice. Micah 6.8, for example. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Justice is a common biblical theme. And it's not something that is natural to us as fallen sinners. In fact, we in our flesh, in our sin, we are bent toward injustice. In our dealings with others, in our approach to life, because we in our sin are selfish and are seeking our own gain without regard for other people. But justice is something that is natural to God. God is perfectly just. In fact, God is the epitome of justice. He is the source of justice. He is where justice is found. It is a part of his nature, a part of his character. And as such, God cannot act in any way that is unjust. There's an old hymn that says, Whatever my God ordains is right. 
not him, is right. Because God is always just. Unfortunately, due to sinfulness of human minds, justice is also extremely misunderstood. Especially in our modern times, with the word justice being attached to things that are decidedly unjust. Just in the last couple of weeks with the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, which was an unjust decision, we have seen politicians and leaders clamoring for what they call reproductive justice, which is clearly just a euphemism for the right to murder babies. But they call that reproductive justice. Over the last several years, we've seen, the, seen a rise in calls for so-called economic justice, which is really just a euphemism for the forced redistribution of wealth to take from those who have and to give to those who do not. And most specifically, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention, especially in the church, we have seen the rise of calls for social justice which is a euphemism for giving privilege to those deemed to be underprivileged within a society in order to, quote-unquote, balance the scales. These things don't really fit within what the Bible would describe as just or justice, which is inextricably linked with righteousness in the scriptures. Justice has, has very little to do with equity, and much to do with righteousness. That's what we find in Scripture. That's what we'll find in Psalm 9 this morning. God's justice and righteousness. And as we consider this psalm together today, I want us to see that the justice of God is something that we should be thankful for. Something that we should be praising God for. And it is also something that we should be praying for. Not simply as something that will hinder or destroy our enemies but because it upholds the righteousness of God and furthers the spread of the gospel. So let's look together at Psalm 9, starting with the first 12 verses. If you got one of our sermon listening guides out of a bulletin or off the back table, uh, you'll see that there are two points this morning. The first point comes from verses 1 through 12, where we see praise for God's justice. Praise for God's justice. Let's look together at Psalm 9, beginning in verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause, and have, you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David opens Psalm 9 with thankfulness to God. 
And remember, last week, we saw that when you see those small capital letters on the word Lord, that that is a, an indication of Yahweh, the covenant name of God. That's the name of God that is used when they want to specify that, that we're talking about God in his covenant nature toward Israel. It's a way of them saying, our God, our Lord. And so David is again focusing on God as the one who has made and kept promises to his people as the central focus of his thankfulness. And he says that he is giving thanks to Yahweh with his whole heart. When we see a heart expressed in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean the same thing that it means in our modern language. If we say that we are doing something with all of our heart, it typically means something like with heartfelt emotion, with, with all of our emotional being. We are doing this thing because we are striving to make ourselves and our emotions work in a certain way. But biblically, when we see, when we see the Bible talking about heart, it's referring to our innermost being, the central part of who we are. In the New Testament... This was understood to be the bowels from way down deep within us. To be compassionate in the New Testament was to be moved in the bowels. To be tenderhearted was to have good bowels. I'm stressing this not because I'm trying to be novel or, or, or new in how I'm approaching this or because I want you to be impressed with my deep knowledge of the Bible. I don't want you to walk away from this and go, wow, Pastor Corey is really wise. He knew that the New Testament means bowels when it says heart. That's not what I'm trying to convey here. I'm stressing this because I want you to understand what our praise of God is supposed to look like. <laughs> there has been a massive emphasis over the last 150 years or so where you see the rise of emotionalism in worship. You, you've seen this continue to grow with the types of music that they play. And I want you to, I want you to understand, folks, I grew up you know, as a musician. I've played several different instruments. I, I played in a band when I was going to seminary, a band that probably none of you would enjoy. But I, I, I know stuff about music. And one of the things that's true about music is that you can structure music in such a way to elicit an emotional response. You can put certain chords together, you can make certain key changes happen that are gonna make you feel things, often in a way that you don't even realize. You don't even recognize it, it just happens. You're like, oh, all of a sudden I feel really happy or all of a sudden I feel really sad and I don't really know what happened. And it often has to do with a certain type of chord that is played at a certain time in a certain progression and it just makes you feel things. And so that has been used and abused in some churches, quote unquote, to drive this emotionalism in worship. And even now, you may know people who have told you, who have said to you that they gravitate towards certain churches or denominations because of how it makes them feel. I need to feel things. I need to feel it. That is not what David is talking about when he is talking about praising God with his whole heart. When the Bible says things like this, he's not, they're not talking about emotions. 
It's talking about the whole of our being from deep within us. All of me is praising God. I will give thanks to the Lord from my guts. Is kind of what's happening here. It's not about what you feel. It's about a conscious decision that all of you is thankful to God. Not just on the surface, but every part of me. And so as David gives us these repeated synonymous verbs in verses 1 and 2, we need to set them within that as the proper context for how we thank and praise God according to David's example here. We praise God with our whole being, not just outwardly. And it's based upon remembering what God has done. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. And then his goodness is what's driving our gladness. And it overflows into our exaltation of him. David says, I will be glad and exult in you. And thus, we sing. We praise. We worship in this way. David says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I want you to remember these two verses the next time you half-heartedly praise the Lord in song. The next time you're here on a Sunday morning, and maybe it's a song you don't particularly care too much about. Maybe it's a style of music you're not really fond of. Maybe you just don't like to sing. Maybe you're just one of those people that's just like, you know, I don't really like to sing. It's not really my thing. And so you just kind of, I stand away. That's, that's kind of how you sing. You should be singing from your guts. Even if when you sing, it sounds like someone is kicking you in the guts, you should be singing from your guts. You should be praising God with your whole being. So that means you sing loud. That means you sing joyfully. Even if you sing terribly, it's okay. I promise you, nobody in this room is judging your talent. This is not American Idol. You are praising the king of the universe. The one who has saved you from certain death and destruction. And you sing like that? Come on, folks. Sing with your whole being. Sing from your guts. And what is at the root of this thankfulness, this praise? The justice of God. It's the justice of God. Verse 3 transitions here into what David has in view here. And he says, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Notice that verse 3 begins with David saying, when? When my enemies turn back. This is an indication that this is something that has not happened yet. David is praising God both in recounting what he has already done and in expectation of what he is going to do. You notice that? I give thanks to the Lord because I am recounting your wonderful deeds. And then he says, when my enemies turn back. You see, we think about what the Lord has done not because we are supposed to just look at those things and go, wow, that's really cool. But because we're supposed to look at those things and recognize that that same God, the same God who parted the Red Sea so that Israel crossed on literal dry land and then crashed the sea down on top of the pursuing armies after them, that same God cares for you and cares for me. David 
recognizes the stories of what God has done, not just as cool stories that you can tell in children's church, but as recognition of what God will do for his people. And so David is, is, is thanking God and praising God in expectation of what God is going to do. And these are expectations based upon God's nature and God's character. David knows that the enemies, that his enemies, are going to stumble and perish before the presence of the Lord. David has a right expectation of God's holiness and the inability of sin to withstand that holiness. That when God gets involved, sin cannot stand. And David knows that the Lord is going to maintain his just cause by sitting on his throne, giving righteous judgment. So here, again, we see the link made between justice and righteousness. As I said before, justice is not necessarily equity, as is commonly thought of today, but is instead judgment that determines rights, rewards, and punishments based upon the perfect knowledge and goodness of God. God's unquestionable sovereignty in this is imaged to us in David speaking of God being sat on his throne. David uses that imagery of God as king to help us to understand that there is nothing in creation that is outside of his authority. Just as a king on his throne has complete and total authority over his kingdom, God has complete and total authority over all of creation. So when David speaks of these things, he's not speaking of a God that's going to try really hard to make things right. He is speaking of a God who will make things right because he is sovereign over all things. And this judgment of God that is so perfect, it's so perfect that it is permanent. It's a permanent judgment. And I think that that's an incredible thing to remember. Look, his rebuke of the nations leads to the perishing of the wicked with their names blotted out forever and ever. That's what it says in verse 5. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Verse 6, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. If you've ever had to, had to take down a tree in your yard, whether it's alive or dead, you may have noticed we have a tree in the back that's full of rotten disease that's going to have to be taken down. Um, if you've ever had to do that, you know that one of the hardest things about it is getting rid of the stump. Because the stump is where the roots are, and the roots have spread, and they've grown deep, and they've grown wide, and it is very difficult to get all of that out. But what does David say that God has done? You have rooted out their cities. You have literally torn them out by the roots. There is no evidence of them anymore. Their very memory has perished. His rebuke of the nations leads to the perishing of, their, of the wicked with their names blotted out forever and ever. So it's important to understand that in this life, injustice and wickedness may seem as though they are never ending. The only thing that is everlasting about the wicked and the unjust 
is their ruin. That's what, it, that's what David says. David says the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. And I want you to understand something here, okay? This injustice and, and wickedness is not some nebulous force, this impersonal thing that's just kind of floating around out there. It is represented by real people in real cities that the Lord has really destroyed so thoroughly that even their memory has perished. God is a just God, both in this life and in the life to come. In our adult Sunday school class, we've been going through First and Second Samuel, and one of the things that happens a lot in First and Second Samuel is that the people of Israel are commanded to go against these foreign nations and utterly destroy them. And God says, don't leave any of them alive. Kill every single one. All the men, all the women, all the children. Even kill all the livestock. Every last one. And that makes us a little bit squeamish sometimes. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable to say, wait, what? That, that seems wrong. That seems cruel. That seems unjust that God would do that. <coughs> Those are innocent people. No, they're not. No, they're not. They are a part of people's who have utterly rebelled against the sovereign king of the universe, who have attacked and harassed his people that he has chosen. And in so doing, they are attacking him. For example, if one of you were to attack my one of my children, you're attacking me. And I'm probably going to attack you, just fair warning. And so that's what's happening there. God is, in, is enacting justice against these people because that is who God is. And so take contrast the destruction of the wicked and the unjust. Contrast their ruin with God who is enthroned forever. Look at verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. <coughs> So God's perfect, just reign will not end because God cannot be overthrown. His throne is established forever. There is no one who is going to come in and unseat God as king. There's no usurping that. There's no palace coup that can take place. God is God forever. And what has he done with his throne? Has he established it for his own personal enrichment? No. Has he established it that he can cruelly be, be unkind to people? No. He has established his throne for justice. He uses his sovereign rule to do what is right, not to oppress those who are beneath him. Contrast that with the stories that we know of earthly kings, right? That kind of power corrupts. It brings out the sinful nature of man. And even, in, even in reading through the Bible, the kings of God's people, the list of good kings is fairly short. And even the good kings did some pretty awful stuff. Even David, who is considered to be the best of the best, the top of the line, committed adultery, murdered someone, did not deal with sin in his own family, in his own children. All of those things are things that we see just in David. 
And he's one of the good ones. And then the list of bad kings, of unjust kings, of wicked kings, is remarkably long. Among the people of God, much less outside of the people of God. But David here is setting God apart from the kings of the earth because God's throne has been established for justice. God judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. So, to use a modern example, where the world says that we should, uh, excuse me, back up one step, this means that we can use God's word as the standard for how we judge matters in this life. His standard of righteousness is perfect. And so we can judge matters in this life according to his perfect standard of righteousness. So, for example, where the world says that we should redistribute all wealth so that everyone has the same, and where even some who claim the name of Christ state that the Bible shows us that we should live in a socialistic society where we don't have personal possessions. You may have heard someone say that before. You may have heard someone say the Bible says that, that we should all be socialists. We should just share everything together, using the example of the early church in the book of Acts. So where the world says those sorts of things, the Bible establishes that we have things that do, and by extension, do not belong to us. Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. You can't steal things if no one has any personal possessions. If it's all shared in common, it's not stealing. See what I mean? It also, God's word also tells us that even charity should have wise limitations. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So where the world says justice is, everyone shares everything all the time. Where the world says justice is, hey, listen, it doesn't matter if they don't want to get a job. Give them money, give them food, give them whatever they need to have. God's word instructs us to think about these things in a different way. Now, please understand, that does not mean that we should not help those who are less fortunate. We should, we should help those who are in need. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But we must not completely throw away all of God's word in our pursuit of doing what is right. Because what is just is not necessarily what the world thinks is just. Our standard of justice should be God's word. Not what makes us feel good or what particularly may tug at our heartstrings. As we have, have, have seen in the last couple of weeks uh, with the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade, one of the things that has happened is we're, we're seeing a lot of stories intended to tug at our heartstrings. Oh, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? And while those things are awful and horrible, no, no person should ever be raped, ever. But over and over again, we must come back to the fact that we cannot compound injustice by murdering an innocent child, murdering a baby, because someone else was harmed. Do you understand what I mean? We cannot shape our concept of justice around what makes us feel okay. It must be shaped around God's standard of righteousness, what we find in God's 
And we should praise God for his justice because it's his justice that reminds us that he is a stronghold in times of trouble. In verses 9 and 10, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God's unwavering commitment to do what is right is behind God being faithful to keep his promises. That's why David emphasizes that those who know his name, his covenant name, that's what he uses there, put their trust in him. Because they know that he who has promised is faithful. He has not forsaken his people. And so this section ends with a call from David for the people of God to praise his name. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. We're not just to praise God. We're to go and tell his deeds to the peoples. Plural. So he's telling, David is telling Israel, part of praising God, part of doing justice, is to go out and to tell these other peoples about the deeds of God. The just cause that was mentioned in verse 4 isn't just about being able to live in peace without being attacked by the other nations. It's about being a light to the world. They are going and telling so that the God who is mindful of his people doesn't destroy them as he has done to other nations who attacked his people. He is the one who avenges blood and does not forget the cry of the afflicted. The stories that we see of God caring for his people, like I mentioned earlier with, with Israelites being, being brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea. For the people of Israel, that is a comforting thing, right? The people of Israel hear that story and go, God has taken care of us. Other nations hear that story and go, we probably shouldn't cross God. We probably shouldn't go against Yahweh because Egypt was the mightiest nation in the whole world and God snuffed them out like that. That's why they're told to go and to tell. Because God is the one who avenges blood. God is the one who does not forget the cry of the afflicted. We praise God for his justice because it is his justice that is our comfort when we are afflicted. It is his justice that frees us to tell of his works and his name to those who would afflict us. And so we pray for God's justice. In fact, that's the next thing that we see in our text this morning. We see prayer for God's justice. Prayer for God's justice. Let's look at verses 13 through 20. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David shifts from his praise of God's justice to a prayer that God would act justly toward him. Specifically, he's praying that God would bring salvation to him. 
As we've discussed before, when we see that word salvation in the Old Testament, it's typically used in the context of physical deliverance from the danger of death. Not in the spiritual way that we're accustomed to hearing or see or using the word. When we hear salvation, when we use salvation, we're talking about Jesus Christ, right? We're talking about deliverance from true eternal death. But David here is talking about physical death. He's calling for salvation from God from the danger that he is presently facing. And David is asking this in full expectation that God will act graciously toward him. And God is going to do this by ensnaring the wicked in the traps that they have laid for God's people. That's how he's going to do this. David calls upon God to see his affliction. And he says, see my affliction. Save me from this, Lord. Be gracious to me that I can recount all your praises. So remember, part of justice is going and telling what God has done. And David is saying, God, do justly so that I have more things to go and to tell. And he doesn't say to God, hey, God, make me mighty. Make my strength increase that I may fight against my enemies in battle and win. He calls upon the Lord to do something that only the Lord can do. To cause their traps and snares to entangle and get them. Reminds me of the old Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons. Where the coyote is constantly trying to catch the Roadrunner. And he's buying all these explosives and things. And he's trying to trap the Roadrunner. And it always ends up that he is the one who is hurt or caught by the things that he is using. David, well before that time, pitches the idea right here. And he says, Lord, make yourself known by doing what only you can do. Take these snares and traps that they have laid for me and use them against them. And David talks about it not as something that might happen, not as something that could happen. He says the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared. So again, David is calling out an expectation to God knowing that God is going to act. Knowing that God is just and will hear his pleas and will move justly. In verse 17, we see David say, The wicked shall return to Sheol all the nations that forget God. That use of that word return there is significant. Because what it shows us is that those who are against God, those who are not of the Lord, are not only destined for eternal death, but that is literally a return to their natural state. David said those who are already dead are going to return to death. Their wickedness is going to ensnare them and they are going to return to Sheol. This too is a part of God's judgment upon their sin. That their natural state is one of death. They act in the way that sinners do because God has given them over to their depravity. 
One of the things that you have heard me say before and you will hear me say again is that as Christians, we should not be angry at sinners because they act like sinners. We should not have an expectation that sinners are going to act in a righteous way. I have been thoroughly unsurprised by the, the unfolding vitriol in our country when Roe v. Wade was overturned. I've been unsurprised because wicked sinners are going to act in, act in wickedly sinful ways. And it's horrible. Make no mistake, I'm not saying that our, that our hearts should not be filled with righteous anger about what they are doing. But the reality is, they can't help it. They are given over to their sinfulness. They cannot do anything other than sin. You can no more talk them out of sin than you can reason with a wild animal. If you come across a rabid bear in the forest, you're not going to say to that rabid bear, hey, hey, Mr. Rabid Bear, please don't attack me. Please don't bite me and kill me and give me rabies, please. No, you're going to run. You're going to climb. You're going to fight. You're going to get away from that bear in every possible option. And yet we try to go and reason with sinners who cannot do anything other than sin. Instead, we need to be praying for God's justice to prevail. Either A, that the proclamation of the gospel, that God will use that to give them new life in Christ, or that God's justice will bring judgment upon them. Those are the only two options. That's what David is doing here. He is simultaneously saying, I am going to recount your wonderful deeds to all the people. And also I am praying that the wicked will return to Sheol. That is how we should be praying for God's justice. That God's justice will be done by either A, placing their sins upon Jesus Christ for salvation, or B, that they would fall under the judgment of God sooner rather than later. That's how we as Christians are to pray. Because David links the justice of God in destroying the wicked to the hope of the poor and the needy. See how he does that? For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. A large part of injustice, as the Bible talks about it, is taking advantage of other people, particularly those who are in need. There were specific laws that God gave about how we are to relate to the poor, about how Israel specifically was to relate to the poor. God gave specific laws about charging interest on loans. We saw some of this with our study through the book of Ruth, where we saw laws about letting the poor harvest from the edges of the field, right? That God said in the, in the law, when you harvest, leave the edges of the field unharvested so that the poor can go and pick. We saw God establish laws to care for the needy through the, process, through the idea of the kinsman redeemer, right? Which also doesn't just have to do with people, it has to do with property as well. That if someone has lost the ability to take care of their property and they have to sell it, the whole thing that's supposed to happen is a family member is supposed to come in and buy it so that they can get their property back. God has these things set up in his law to care for the poor. And one of the most repeated condemnations of Israel and Judah from the prophets is their abuse of the poor. In the book of Amos chapter 5, we see this. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you adapt taxes of grain from him, 
You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many of, are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Through Amos, God condemns the nation of Israel because what have they done? They have taken advantage of the poor in order to enrich themselves. And God says, hey, that's a really nice house you got there. Too bad you're never going to live in it. That's a really nice vineyard you planted. Too bad you're never drinking the wine because you have, these are ill-gotten gains. And so as Christians, we should be particularly sensitive to ill-gotten gains. We should be particularly sensitive to this idea of building up profits on the back of those who are needy, of those who are poor. We should be really mindful of where our clothing companies manufacture their clothing. Are they employing children for two cents a day to stitch your jeans? That should be something that we as Christians hate. Not go, well, they're cheap jeans. That's not justice. Jesus himself even speaks of caring for the least of these, specifically those needy fellow believers, as though it were caring for Jesus himself, reminding us of the inherent dignity found in every person because they are made in the image of God. If we love God, then we should love justice. And if we love justice, then we should love the needy and the poor. Now remember what I said. We love the needy and the poor in the context of God's righteous judgment that we see laid out in Scripture. Right? So caring for the poor does not mean every time you see a beggar, you open your wallet and give them all of your money. That's not what he means by caring for the poor. What it means is make sure they have something to eat. Make sure they have some clothes to wear. That's what it means. Make sure they have what they need. Care for them in that way. Our call is to care for them and to help them meet their needs. Not step on them as a way to enrich ourselves. David concludes this psalm with a request of God to not let the wicked man prevail. He says, Arise, O Lord, not, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David says, Lord, bring about judgment. Put fear in them. Make them know that you are God. And remind them that they are only men. If you were here last week or if you listened to our sermon from last week online, you recognize immediately the contrast between Psalm 8 and Psalm 9. Psalm 8 marveled at the fact that God is mindful of men at all. Remember, David said, when I consider the works of your hands, the things that you have done with your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? But here in Psalm 9, David is calling upon God to remind the wicked that they are but men. In Psalm 8, man knows their place. And in Psalm 9, man has forgotten our prayer for God's justice should be a prayer that men and women remember their place. Christians do justice because we know we are but men. We are but women. We are made in the image of God, and so is everyone else. The wicked don't because they don't know that they are but men, that they are but women. 
and that they will die. For those who are God's people, our place is that God is mindful of us. For those who are not, your place is that God will break you. One of the things that this psalm reminds us of is that the Lord is going to judge the world in perfect righteousness. Paul affirms this in his sermon in, in Athens in Acts 17, where he quotes this psalm. He says, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul takes Psalm 9 and says, you want to see God's perfect justice? Look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. He is the one who is going to judge the world in righteousness forever. And God has promised us this. He has shown us this. How? By raising Jesus from the dead. The perfect righteousness of God will not allow sin to stand unpunished. That's why Jesus had to die. But God gives life through that death in the resurrection of Christ as well. It may take time before judgment comes for the wicked, but it will come. And for those in Christ, our punishment has been placed upon him. The Lord's perfect justice has been executed literally upon Jesus on our behalf. Our hearts should praise the Lord for his justice because it is his justice that brings us salvation in Christ. And our hearts should long for his justice because one day his justice is going to make all things new. As our catechism question from last week reminded us, every part of fallen creation is redeemed in Christ. The wicked will pass away, but the promises of God in Christ will never pass away. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing about the amazing grace of God. And I want to encourage you to think about the justice of God and sing from your guts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your justice, your perfect, righteous justice. Father, I pray that today that our hearts would be encouraged by that justice, that we would trust fully in your righteousness in all things, that we would rejoice in our salvation that has been brought about by your perfect justice, that we would pray, Lord, that your justice would come, for the whole world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.